Hi, I'm Jared Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and for this edition of our conversation, we're joined by Bridget Bergen of WNYC Radio. Hey, Bridget. Hey, Ben. Um, so we're talking one week from primary day, a lot of excitement in the air coming off a of Labor Day weekend. Um, so Bridget, tomorrow night is the second of two Democratic mayoral primary debates, Sal Albanese and Bill de Blasio. What are you looking for in this one? So going into the first debate, we knew that Sal Albanese was going to be on the attack, which he was. But I think part of what we also saw was that beyond some of the attack lines, some of the substance of his policies was sort of thin, um, which then in some respects lets the mayor off the hook for having to engage in a more substantive debate. So I think what could and, and could be interesting is does you know, does Sal Albanese show up on the stage, you know, prepared to go a little bit deeper and to push the mayor a little bit harder? Because at this point, we know that part of what this exercise is, is it's really about, uh, it's not necessarily going to change the outcome of the race, but it's about hearing more about what a second term de Blasio administration will look like, which I think to this point, we still don't have a real clear view on. We just know it's an extension of this first term. And one of those areas in the first debate where Albanese wasn't ready to talk about policy was on Rikers. He also didn't have an answer on a, a ACS, Administration for Children's Services, question. So hopefully, um, just for the discussion, as you say, he'll be a little more prepared on things. You know, I'm, I'm certainly, I was hoping in the first debate, and now I'm hoping in the second, that he will have some new sort of interesting ideas. Speaking of Rikers, actually, on this day that we're talking, he's outlining a plan. So he'll probably talk about that a bit and critique de Blasio's plan that is sort of a plan. Um, you know, Albanese had a press conference recently about, you know, green garbage trucks. I mean, even things like that, there's a way to make them interesting in a debate setting. So I'm hoping that he'll continue to sort of so, show some new ideas. And I'm still interested in the tone issues for Albanese. As you said, he's unlikely to change the outcome of the race mm -hmm. at this stage if he ever was likely to do it. But, you know, I've known and or covered Sal for 20 years now. And, you know, his sort of taking on the... Um, visage of this sort of angry outer rural white ethnic. Um, at some point, in some way, he looks the part, but that's not actually who Sal is. And I wonder about if he's thinking of the long game at all, not just his reputation, but the question of, is there a critique of de Blasio that has some progressive or at least democratic roots and is not chiefly driven by anger at the mayor or resentment of him personally? You know, is there a, an alternative way to approach the vision for the city that Albanese can articulate. I don't know if I have time to do that Wednesday night, but that would be very interesting to see if he did. You know, Albanese is on Twitter saying the race is closer than people think, and I have a feeling, and there's not a lot of enthusiasm for Bill de Blasio out there, and don't be shocked, and things like that. And, you know, we wrote um, an article about the fact that there's been very little polling. Well, we don't um, know how close it is. We don't, right. right. We don't have a true. sense. and. Who knows how much to trust polling anyway, but at least it gives you a little more indication. Right. However, um, I think that is the optimistic view that any um, insurgent candidate needs to approach a primary <laughs> race with. But when you think realistically, what is this election about? What are all elections about? They're about getting people out to vote. And it's clear that the de Blasio campaign does have an infrastructure across the five boroughs of people who are, you know, volunteering with the campaign, who will be part of, you know, part of the momentum to get people out the door. 
Also, one of the things that the campaign did very early on, which was very different from 2013, is they locked up all of the union endorsements. Now, some of those unions, I think, are probably more enthusiastic than others, but when you have a group of voters who have, you know, are part of a constituency that can, you know, sort of take the lead of their leaders and they're being told, this is our guy, you know, that's a hard thing, that's a hard challenge to overcome. Yeah, he began, he began lacking up those union uh, endorsements more than a year ago. Absolutely. Uh, which is interesting, kind of changing the landscape even before we learned about the non-indictments and other storylines. One thing that's interesting about the debate, uh, the previous one, was partly because uh, Albanese was on the attack and de Blasio on the defensive, not only did we not learn much about his second term, but even first term, there are so many things we didn't talk about. We barely mm -hmm. talked about immigration. Um, we barely no talked about jobs. Education right. wasn't mentioned, resiliency. Um, you know, Maliotakis has made this bid to uh, debate five or six or 20 times uh, during the general election. That's unlikely to happen. But I'll be interested to see if Wednesday night some more of those topics come up or if we stick to the ones that we've been kind of revolving around. One thing I'm curious talking to a radio person is, mm -hmm. you know, you learn in poli sci that the 1960 John Kennedy Nixon debate was very different television versus radio. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering. You know, we watched the debate last week. Do you think that there's any sort of an important visual element? I mean, there's the height differential, Absolutely. facial expressions. What do you think was the visual element that someone would have lost? Not that they shouldn't listen to it on WNYC, of course, but if you weren't <laughs> seeing the debate live. Well, I think, uh, you know, a caveat I would say is, one, we were streaming the debate live on our website. So I think it's likely that most people who were consuming it were consuming it with some visual element. And if nothing else, if they were just driving in their car and they were hearing it, I think that's that's the scenario that you're, you're talking about, where you do hear um, a difference in tone. Um, you know, I, I think that you could hear the mayor being more defensive than I think I expected. Um, I, I expected him to come across as more confident, self-assured, you know, he believes that he's, you know, and, and does have a track record of some real accomplishments over the past four years and that that was going to be kind of the foundation that he was going to be debating from. And instead, he very quickly, you know, fell into some of Sal Albanese's, you know, traps of getting him agitated and provoking a response that I don't think were as effective, but I'm not sure, you know, I don't think the difference between how you heard it or how you saw it was significant. Certainly, I think watching the debate, I think the difference that I heard the most people talk about was the difference between being in the room during that debate versus watching it you know, somewhere else. And from people who are in the room, it sounds like Sal Albanese was very prepared with supporters who were willing to antagonize the mayor from the jump. And watching it on television, you know, some of that didn't come through. It really only came through when actually the moderator, Errol Lewis, had to um, chastise the audience and warn people that they needed to be quiet or else they were going to be asked to leave. That was a really fascinating element of it. And being in the room, you sort of can't help but being affected by the fact that the crowd seemed very anti-de Blasio. I yep. wouldn't even say pro-Albanese, just anti-de Blasio. I don't even know if those were really that many Albanese people. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been you know, people that just really, you know, have a problem with the mayor in some way, shape, or form. Um, but all it takes is 15 or 20 people in a room like that right. to sort of heckle and clap and jeer, and it can influence a lot. 
Well, it has a huge influence in part in how the debate is covered the next day because for the, the journalists... have to be careful. Yeah. yeah, for the journalists who are in, in that room, some of the initial response and reaction that you're going to get are from some of those people. And if, you know, if the room is packed with people who are, you know, anti de Blasio, well, then there's a chance that more of those quotes about reaction to the debate are going to be anti de Blasio quotes. Um, Again, and I think you could see them. I think you could. I thought I could see the mayor sort of. It, it, I think it caught him up a little bit at the beginning. It might have yeah. helped to put him on the defensive, which was quite notable from the outset. That, that yep. whatever game plan he had, he seemed to deviate from. Uh, one question that put him on the defensive, and the other shoe has kind of dropped on it. And I think we'd be remiss not to discuss it. Is the mayor's much long-awaited memo op-ed oh, yes. on mm -hmm. uh, the role that donors have and hadn't played in his administration, released on Medium last Friday before a long weekend. Um, I guess the question is, does that help de Blasio put that batter away? I mean, is this, does that go away now that he's done that, satisfied or didn't satisfy it, but it's out? Or, or is that still a, a line of attack for Albanese and potentially for others? I don't have any insights into what the moderators and panelists who will be asking the questions are going to ask. But I, if I had to bet, I would say that it comes up. And if it doesn't come up from then, it perhaps comes up from Albanese in some way, shape, or form. And it should. I mean, it was really fell very short of what he had sort of long promised in this defense of his administration. And I understand why. I think it was a big mistake for him in the first mm -hmm. place to exactly. offer this. Um, but I think it'll come up. And no, I don't think that's going to be put to bed. And it you know, shouldn't be both strategically and just sort of generally politically. I think one of the... The challenges around this issue specifically, and I, I think to a certain degree, the mayor has been right about the fact that it doesn't necessarily resonate with people who are outside of the political sphere. And so for people who are not journalists or civic leaders or, um, you know, active, you know, especially, in, you know, engaged political watchers, that this was a complicated set of um, allegations that, you know, ultimately he was, you know, not accused of anything criminally, despite, you know, some serious condemnation from prosecutors. Um, I agree with you that the commitment to come up with a list of donors who did not re receive favors from the administration. <laughs> I mean, I remember sitting in the room when he made the promise right. thinking, yeah, this is a, yeah. this is a bad idea. Yeah. And I, I think it is worth giving credit to our colleagues who have remained on top of him and asked, where is this list? Because if you're going to commit to doing something like this because it's part of you know, your commitment to ethical transparency, I also agree with you that this, what, you know, to, to go from a list to, you know, committing to an op-ed to this, you know, op-ed that's self-published on yeah, what someone described, yeah. Yeah, someone who describes me as, um, you know, a blogging site for millennials, you know, I, I think, yes, falls very short. It will still be an issue, I think, that the press and that other leaders um, point to when they want to, you know, raise questions about um, his ethical compass. But I don't think it's an issue that hurts him 
with the electorate, broadly speaking. And I will say that the Durst organization's response right. goes down as the right. best right. enigmatic reacts quote right. ever. Tremendous. The yeah. winter is coming. Winter is coming. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, before we move on from Wednesday night's debate, um, does it matter? I mean, you know, we're talking about where this can go. And, and again, Albanese has this optimism that the numbers are not what people might think, and we don't know what the numbers are. Um, does it matter? Why does it matter? Could it matter? It absolutely matters. And I think, you know, there have been, it, it absolutely matters because you know, in a democracy, you need to have this exchange of ideas. And for no other reason, you know, as, as we've said, as you know, I said before, I think people deserve to have a better sense of what a second term of Bill de Blasio will look like. What are the goals? We know that, you know, addressing the uh, inequality gap has been something that has kind of been a theme of his administration, and certainly there's a long way to go there. We know that there are, there are big goals like around affordable housing that he's working to achieve, but he's not there yet. The rezoning of certain neighborhoods, you know, it's it's they're on the boards, but they're not there yet. And yet there's still no, you know, there isn't the pre-K kind of vision that there was in 2013. Um, you know, what's again, the big signature? Right, what's proposal, the signature? I mean, right. there's 3K, there's 3K, but he's already he already yeah, announced that, right. and and that is clear that it's not ramping up in the same way that pre-K no. was. And so, you know, it's, I think if he were able to come to that debate stage this week and, you know, have some big idea, that would help his campaign. And I think it would help voters um, feel more motivated to come out uh, which I think is going to be really a big issue on Tuesday. People want to see vision. I agree with you completely. And this is something I've been sort of trying to push Sal Albanese. You know, we've all been sort of saying to Sal Albanese, like, what's your vision? Where yeah. Where is it? How do you put this together? Don't just release three or four little policy, not little, but, you know, policy points. Um, and I think people are going to want to see that in the general election from Nicole Maliotakis. What is your vision? Um but anyway, Jerry, you were What's interesting say. about that, too, is that de, de Blasio's first ad um, of this season was mm -hmm. a, you know, a, a lovely ad that sought to humanize the mayor a little, which is definitely necessary, but focused on pre-K. Yeah. It's like the same idea is still the kind of linchpin. What is fascinating to me is that for so much of his first term, de Blasio has labored, labored under the transformative mayor label, right? How do you live up to those expectations mm -hmm. that you're going to transform the city? They're going to tackle beastly problems like income inequality. Mm -hmm. And I think there now might be a tendency for him to approach a second term more as like a managerial mayor. Mm -hmm. um, but that is certainly a difficult thing to make stick as a campaign slogan yeah. for a guy and, and, and who I think doesn't have a great reputation as a manager, even though in some ways he's managed the city fairly well. That's just not his, you know, it's not his shtick. Exactly. And I think, you know, to, to your final point there, I, I think we saw throughout the past four years that the mayor's ambition, um, whether it is for higher office or not, but for his policy and for his worldview, definitely extends beyond New York City. And you know, his attempt, although not terribly successful over the past four years, to become a leading national voice for progressives is something I. I don't see him backing away from. No, that's you know, not going anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because 
it's it's so fascinating to me, and this is we could take this discussion in a whole different direction. So I'll just say what I'm thinking very quickly. But you know, he had it in 2013. He sort of had this thing that Democrats are wrestling with now, and probably didn't do well enough in 2016 in the yeah. presidential election. He called out Democrats in 2014 for not running on economic populism more and, and economic inequality. So I sort of get in his mind why he thinks he should be more of this leading voice than he is. And I do think if he wins a second term, it's going to be very focused on this brand building, which you need accomplishments in the city to do. But I think he's absolutely got that on the brain still. So a lot of other races on the docket come September 12th. Uh, What others are you looking at most closely? So, you know, kind of overarching, I'm interested in the council races um, and I'm interested in particular about, you know, women who are able to win re-election or who are elected. Um, You know, this is not a new issue. I think people have talked about it throughout this campaign season, but the idea that we are potentially going to have a city council uh, with eight women um, raises real issues, you know, to me. And, And it makes me wonder about the type of legislation you know, that was passed over the past four years that would be less likely to see the light of day um, in a council that just might not be thinking about issues like making sure that, you know, women at homeless shelters and at Rikers have access to, you know, appropriate, um, you know, feminine hygiene products. Like, you know, I think these are really important issues that it concerns me that you know, the balance is going to be so out of whack. Yeah, 51 seats. You know, there's 13 women right now. And, and you know, if there's some upsets, it could be even lower than eight. You exactly. know, if Helen Rosenthal loses or Margaret Chin loses, et cetera, those are unlikely. But, um, you know, we've had a woman as speaker. Mm-hmm. We've had a woman as finance chair. They Neither of them will be there. Melissa Margarito and Jalissa Ferreres Copeland. Uh, all signs point to a male speaker and lots of other, you know, machinations having to do with the county parties and you know we're looking at some some of these very powerful positions being held by men not to mention just what's the balance in that 51 seat chamber so i think that's a huge theme to watch on primary day and there's several races where you know it's sort of a the top two candidates are a man and a woman and you know it's unclear where things will go and then that actually ties into another theme that I'm interested in, which is all these state assembly members and even a couple of state senators um, trying to come to the city council. Mm-hmm. And in a few of those cases, it's a male state legislator facing, you know, a female candidate that's more of someone who's been working in the district and, a, you know, an accomplished aide to someone or, uh, you know, community board leader or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, we sort of see the patriarchy playing out in real life right in front of you, you know, in some of these races. I'm really fascinated by the districts where it appears, and it's, you know, there's no polling in the mayoral race this year. There's never any polling in <laughs> council races, so we're really just guessing. But where it seems as though incumbents have at least an interesting challenge, you know, there yeah. are several of those. Um, there usually are a few, but it seems like there's a kind of a bumper crop this year, and a lot of it really surrounding development issues, um, which is crucial because in several of these districts, there are likely to be rezoning plans going through ULERB, if not between now and the end of this term, certainly during de Blasio's second term if he's reelected, uh, where one of the areas where council members really have tremendous power mm-hmm. um, is something we've covered very closely. So looking at how those issues frame the races and also how 
um, the challengers discuss their own views on that without boxing themselves in. Are there a couple council incumbents that you think are particularly vulnerable? I mean, I think it's generally considered that Helen Rosenthal is vulnerable. I think Fernando Cabrera is vulnerable in the Bronx. Um, I am not sure about uh, uh, Matthew Jean in, in, mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Um, Lori Cumbo, possibly. Yes, that's on, obviously yeah. that's on people's mm-hmm. lists. I mean, you talked about the Menchaca race. Right. Um, yeah, yeah he's, I mean, yeah, he's facing a sitting assembly member. That's not an easy win. Yeah. And it's so interesting talking about, you know, the, the question about gender balance and how term limits and the advent of the campaign finance system of public matching really has helped the council. It feels a lot more diverse mm-hmm. on racial and ethnic lines um, than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And just the, the different kinds of people that are on the council, walks of life, it's, it's much more vibrant than it was when I was covering the council as a college intern. Um, a lot less dead wood was the, the term of art. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has not extended really to, to the gender balance. And I think yeah. that's that's a fascinating subtext of the race, as is the question of the speaker. I mean, I think when we talk about de Blasio's first term, successes and failures, the importance of Mark Viverito um, on the front pages and behind the scenes mm-hmm. really can't be overstated. And that's a huge potential change for him. I don't know if the partner that he'll have going forward is going to be any as anything as progressive um, or as sort of personally willing to work with the mayor, if not always personally close, certainly simpatico at a deep ideological level. And I think you raise a really important issue there, um, even by choosing the word partner, um, to the extent that the candidates who are tossing their hat in the ring now for speaker are running as someone who will work with the mayor or running as someone who will serve as a check on the mayor, I think is very interesting. And I think pre-primary, we are, are hearing one thing, I think it will be more interesting post-primary, and that's also when the speaker's race will start to heat up more, when we get post-primary, post-general, um, because at that point, then it's really, you know, you, you, they will be vying for these votes and trying to convince their colleagues that they will be this kind of leader, and is that a leader who is planning to work with the mayor and, and help him on his progressive agenda, or is that going to be a leader who is going to help the council have its own voice and carve out its own agenda? Yeah, that'll be fascinating. I think uh, once we see the primary results, we'll mostly know who those who will be filling those fifty-one seats come yeah. January. Couple, you know, a couple interesting general election races possibly. Let's just talk about a couple other things we're watching, whether for primary day or beyond. We have to mention this Brooklyn district attorney race. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, you know, field of candidates. Acting DA Eric Gonzalez is trying to hold the seat. Um, you know, a variety of candidates having a fairly tough time distinguishing themselves from everything I've watched and read and listened to. Um, you know, they they're all sort of trying to out reform and out progressive each other, which is where the city's at, I guess. Um, Anything else noteworthy in that race that we should be watching, or what else? I just think it's interesting that you know those races have always uh, really interested me. You know, the DA they have such power; they they do it with so little attention normally from the press and others. That because of um, you know the the untimely demise of Ken Thompson and the fact that there aren't um, many other marquee races in the city, I think this race is getting a fair amount of attention. We have the, the televised debate tonight, um, and so I wonder if that will you know you'll see larger turnout, you know, just generally more interest in the race and its outcome. Um, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. I mean, it would have been, I think it would have, 
part of the problem with that race and the attention is you don't have that any name that's really you know bringing people in I don't think if like a Tish James had decided to run that right. might have really but then other people might not have so who knows it might be very quiet right. um, what else what else are we looking at here over the next week or, or a couple of months so one of the things I am always interested in on primary day is how well our city board of elections is able to administer elections. Um, we've already had a little bit of a sign that there may be confusion, certainly in one city council district in Queens, um, in the race that's between uh, Francisco, Assemblyman Francisco Moya and um, former state senator Hiram Montserrat, uh, the poll site at Lafrac City. Um, which had multiple election districts in a poll site, was divided and uh, was uh, sent to two different locations outside of Lafrac City. Uh, there was a court challenge. Um, I think ultimately, you know, that is just an example, raises the question of, you know, how many people are going to head to their poll site on election day and either find themselves in the wrong location, find out that their poll site has moved, the Board of Elections sends out an annual mailing, and that information should be on there, but, you know, there's <laughs> how many people look at all their mail, uh, and if you've, you know, had a poll site that's been where you vote for years, and you show up there, and you're not in the books, you know, that, that can be very disconcerting. Is it because you're in the wrong location, or is there another error that could be at play? Uh, so... Yeah, and you, you've, you've been all over that. And I saw that, that watching that know, happened yeah. in, uh, in Brownsville in 2013, and it mm -hmm. was a bad scene because it, it, people realized that during the big rush, and then the information table is swapped, and people aren't getting answers, and they get right. discouraged, or they worry they did something wrong. And in some cases, it was a matter of walking a couple blocks. In other cases, it was a hike. And um, yeah, so I think it really does depress turnout when that happens. That's so everybody should check their poll site check yep. online site. beforehand, know where they're going. Obviously, one of the things that that ties into is turnout. And if 2013 was low when you had this open mayoral race, this crowded Democratic primary, all these city council seats that were open, I don't know what this year is going to look like. I wonder if in many of these council districts, those races will create some of the energy the mayor's race is not. I wonder if we might see them sort of leading the turnout edge as opposed to the mayoral contest. And I also wonder um, if... You know, knowing that New York City is a, a you know, very, very blue, deep blue city, um, if what we see is some Trump effect that actually drives some turnout, some folks who feel and That's a good point. who feel that you know they need to participate in their democracy in a way that maybe they hadn't been. Um, and it feels good to just go and vote in the next possible election, exactly. even though, you know, you're pretty sure Mayor de Blasio is going to win or something exactly. like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I do wonder with, you know, just a lot of the focus on the national issues, though, if people are, you know, maybe it goes a little bit the other way, but right. I think I think you could, could be on to, to something there. Um, Anything else we're looking for here? I mean, one what, thing what I'm going to start for? looking for now, and I expect we'll see it even more after Tuesday is next Tuesday, is De Blasio and the press. Mm -hmm. You know, this was obviously one of the topics within his his memo to Medium last week. Um, and Don't get me started. It's, it's been a constant uh, source of tension. But you know, one wonders if if at some point 
Um, de Blasio, once he is clear to win the primary, once he has won it, and we'll see how the general shapes up. But there'll be a point where it's clear that he'll have you know, accomplished the, the kind of signal achievement of winning a second term, which is not, not easy. Um, if there'll be a, a, an attempt to sort of make a break with the trajectory to this point and try to establish some other kind of a back and forth or rapport with the press, just ah. because otherwise it's going to be a very long four years for us, but also, but also for him, and he'll be in a position of you know, not feeling especially vulnerable, I would imagine, after having cruised to re-election. That would be the point where from a position of power, he could kind of renegotiate the terms of that relationship in a way that's, that's better for everybody. But call me a dreamer. Yeah, I mean, I will, because, you know, I don't see it happening. I think if he is emboldened by a win, it gives him even more reason to, he cements the conclusion he's had before, which is that the sort of typical approach to the press or relationships with the press don't really matter. It's mostly, you know, overboard critics and naysayers and the phrase he likes to use, doubting Thomases, uh, which I don't know the the genesis of. Um, but uh, it's a cat. I'll have to look it yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but but uh, he, you know, I think I think that's where it heads. The only thing I think in the direction you were talking though is if he sort of has a mandate and there's a bunch of sort of positive coverage of the fact that he's won re-election by a solid amount and, you know, is being the first Democrat returned to City Hall in many decades, maybe he sort of sees all that and gets sort of, uh, you know, that loosens up his vitriol a little bit if he's got this sustained positive coverage for a little while, maybe? What do you think, Bridget? I think that it will be very interesting to see you know, how the numbers do shake out on Tuesday, you know, if he is reelected, if he wins this primary uh, in a, a sort of low turnout, um, you know, something where 2013 looks impressive. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wonder um, if, if not he, people around him reflect a little bit on why that is. Um, and I'm not sure how his relationship with the press will evolve. What I do think will be good um, if, is if there is some sort of reset um, and you know some freshness to the approach. Um, in the last six months, I think we have kind of fallen into a, a pretty consistent, um, a, a consistent sort of way of operating where the mayor does an event with questions maybe about once a week. Um, and then on the other days, he does some ceremonial activity, but not even as much. I mean, there, there are so many policies that the administration has announced on paper over the last six months that, you know, even just thinking back to Bloomberg, you know, they would have planned something so much more grand around them. And I think as a result, would have gotten more credit for them. And so if there's any reflection on, you know, how to help, you know, as the mayor will say about himself, how he could communicate better, I think that will be useful. I'm not sure it will happen, but I think it would be useful. I think uh, we'll be watching all those things and more as we uh, head into primary day, September 12th. So make sure to vote and tell your friends and family to get out there if they're registered in a party that has a, has a primary. Bridget, thanks for chatting. Jared, thank you. Thank Talk you. to you soon.